0: a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table.
1: Hello and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is Tiffany. I am your host today. And we're going to do something a little bit special. We are going to air a little highlight reel, if you will, featuring four of the episodes that we have done here over the last few months. We thought it was a good time to revisit uh, that is currently in the midst of COVID-19. And because of that, we've been sort of inundated with this pandemic. So we decided to bring back some of the best of the best pieces so you can catch up on a few of the episodes that we've done. And also, after you listen to them, these kind of shortened versions, if you will, we'll invite you to take a seat at the table and join the conversation as we always do. The episodes that we're featuring are three where we had expert guests, different stakeholders, rheumatologists, researchers, and one where we had a fellow patient co-host, as we always have patients hosting the show, who also is a researcher. So we wanted to sort of feature experts. And these are different types, different stakeholders are all experts in their own right. But we also want to point out, because we always do have a patient leading these conversations, we don't want to forget the patient is also the expert, right? We're the expert on living with these diseases. So pull up a seat and let's listen. We are going to share with you an interview that we did at the American College of Rheumatology, or ACR, annual scientific meeting with Dr. Apostolos Concias from the Renaissance School of Medicine, Stony Brook University. Okay, well, hello, everyone. We are talking right now with Apostolos Cancias. Did I do it?
2: It, it was great. You, you've been practicing it very well, I it have. seems like. I have.
1: I really have, because that's a tough one. <laughs> But uh, I'm so excited to finally meet you in person.
2: Absolutely. My pleasure. Because
1: we have been collaborating on a patient-reported stills disease brochures project.
2: That's exactly right. And
1: that's how we met because I emailed you and said, we want the best.
2: (laughs) 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 You be the judge.
0: (laughs)
1: you well actually it was funny because last year we told him this earlier last year we when we were here or it was the year before one of them and you were speaking and we couldn't go because it was a paid session and we almost stalked we almost stalked (laughs)
2: you outside (laughs) I could have given you tickets I I wish (laughs) I knew now I know
1: now (laughs) we know but you're at Stony Brook
2: that's exactly right I've been with Stony Brook over the past a year and a half where I'm directing the fellowship training program there and at the same time I'm co-directing the adult auto-inflammatory clinic.
1: There is still a big confusion, particularly among the patient community. What is autoimmune? What is auto-inflammatory? Yes. Which do I have? Absolutely. What is the difference? Could you shed some
2: light? Absolutely. I'll try, I'll, I'll try my best and, and see how, how it goes. So essentially, everybody has known over the course of years, you know, what autoimmune conditions are. And classic ones are lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and they are related to issues with one of the two arms of our immune system, and that's called the adaptive immune system, as opposed to the older version of it all that we have, which is called innate immune system. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Kastner was actually the one who coined the term autoinflammatory. To showcase the, the patients who have inflammatory symptoms, that is, you know, fever, rashes, uh, joint pains, and aches, and arthritis, in the absence of specific signs uh, objectively, in, primarily in the labs, of conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis that are autoimmune conditions. So, in patients with lupus and, and, all, uh, and related conditions, there are biomarkers, there are labs that we do for patients, you know, an ANA, a double-stranded DNA, rheumatoid factor, people will know mm-hmm. uh, that they're frequently positive, and by default they are positive, and that's why they are called autoimmune. But in autoinflammatory syndromes, all of these labs uh, are pretty much unremarkable or low positive, even though they can be highly inflammatory, these mm-hmm. patients. And that's why there's a diagnostic delay because the markers are negative, even though uh, there is inflammation there. People are really uh, drawn into all kinds of different of doctors to try to figure out, you know, what exactly is going on. But they do present both auto-inflammatory and autoimmune with arthritis, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So they do have some common features with increased markers of inflammation. And at the end of the day, this was a mental construct and and, and dichotomy for researchers and clinicians to allow grouping patients into distinct different categories so that we can study them because they do not behave the same clinically Um, Mm -hmm. and they do not present in in similar ways uh, necessarily, right? So that was one of the major drivers behind the classification and distinction between auto-inflammatory and autoimmune to begin with.
1: Okay. So there are essentially, if we're trying to relate this to patients, two different sections, segments mm-hmm. of the, Im- the immune of both system, both relating from the immune system.
2: That's exactly right.
1: And one being innate. Correct. Does that tend to happen to younger people because it's innate? or
2: That's a very good point. In the classic type of auto-inflammatory syndromes, which may be genetically mediated. You can definitely see them in, in early on in, in children, but more and more so, we do see unrecognized you know, patients in the early adulthood or you know, uh, juvenile patients, adolescents, and so on and so forth. So not necessarily the okay. answer is. You have adult onset still disease, for example, yeah. which is a classic you know, auto-inflammatory condition that is definitively By default, seen in patients in early adulthood usually Mm -hmm. or later on. And others, you know, we've diagnosed patients with traps, TNF receptor-associated periodic syndrome in in, in adults. Maybe not Mm -hmm. as commonly as is in children, but they're out there and it requires a high level of suspicion and not assume that these are conditions of childhood or, you know, that's the key thing.
1: So as far as um, the other side, the adaptive... Mm-hmm. is that what the word is. This is what you, it is, adaptive
2: okay. immunity. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, and that is typically then autoimmune, correct? correct? And some patients have asked this question, so I I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity. Does there have to be an environmental component to adapt? I mean, is that what that means?
2: Usually there are triggers to generate inflammatory symptoms, and environmental triggers may trigger Either the innate or the adaptive okay. immunity. Okay, that's uh, uh, great. Uh, yes, for example, sun exposure I mean, triggers lupus. It's not lup- great,
1: but you yeah, know what yeah, I, I know. You know. You know what I meant. I, yeah, that's absolutely. great to know yes, there, because absolutely. that is a misunderstanding. That's
2: exactly right. Sun exposure, which is environmental stimulus, right, trigger induces triggers lupus, which is a not an immune disease, right. Viral infections, for example, at times induce and trigger auto-inflammatory syndromes, you know, such as hyper-IGD syndrome. uh, Patients are very well aware of what the triggers are. They're menstruation, for example, or symptoms increased or triggered around menstrual cycle in, in women, for example, right? So this is so very important to listen to patients because every single patient is going to have a potentially different trigger and different constellation of symptoms, even though the big picture may, may be similar overall.
1: Exactly. Well, that's that was extremely helpful. I have one more breakout sure. question on Please. this. One of the other things that has been transpiring over the last few years is a bridge between autoimmune and autoinflammatory. inflammatory And I know myself, living with spondylitis, that has come up with the question: Is ankylosing spondylitis purely autoimmune? Is it a a mm-hmm. scale? But a and I heard it
2: last year in ULAR for yes. lupus. That's exactly. Right. So, 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 <laughs> so this is an excellent. This is an excellent point, and and that brings home the message that. Any kind of immune mediated condition can have contributions from both adaptive and innate immunity. So, certain kinds of symptoms, let's say inflammation of the lining of the heart, mm-hmm. or that's known as pericarditis, mm-hmm. right? Or inflammation of the lining of the lungs, known as serocitis mm-hmm. or pleuritis. That can happen in both autoimmune, lupus, let's say, or auto inflammatory conditions, stills, for example, right? it's more and more known that certain kinds of symptoms have contributions from both. And serocitis may be more of an innate immunity, auto-inflammatory-related symptom, uh, as opposed to a classic autoimmune uh, symptom related to adaptive immunity, for example. So, and there is anything in between, like, such as spondyloarthritis or and spondylitis, for example. By definition, you don't have autoantibodies. Patients do not their immune systems peanut in inflammatory syndromes, they do not recognize structural components mm-hmm. of of their cells, of their immune cells uh, and others. That's by definition what auto inflammatory means.
1: Okay. So One of the things that IFAA does, literally a part of our mission, is utilizing patient voices to impact change, whether that's in education or awareness and advocacy or public policy or research. So as we're moving forward in understanding and teaching the patient community about the autoimmune versus autoinflammatory, what would you suggest to IFAA that we ask patients to report on or to track as far as... This is auto-inflammatory, or maybe this is more on the autoimmune. Is there anything mm-hmm. that we can do as a as a patient voice or as a nonprofit to specifically track to help sure. differentiate one or the other? Or
2: um, in terms of symptom recognition, at times systemic inflammatory symptoms such as f- especially fever mm-hmm. could be high fever. You know, could be potentially low-grade fever associated with rashes. For example, right. that's that these are a, a couple of clinical symptoms that definitely point towards more auto-inflammatory. It's not that they cannot be seen in autoimmune, but uh, like with lupus, again, correct? We go exactly, back with lupus. exactly. So I mean, lupus is, is a mim- great mimicker of anything, of yeah. everything. Well, and but and psoriatic
1: arthritis, psoriatic arthritis psoriatic. But that's a different level. Of, that's a different type of, of rash. But
2: high, high, highly inflammatory symptoms, especially in the absence of specific positive labs. Okay. Yeah. That makes um, sense. And increase markers of inflammation. Mm-hmm. Uh, That—that's—that's. That's, that th- these are a couple of points that can give clues for both patients and treating physicians that this could be it.
1: That's cool. Great. Thank thank you. Well, mm-hmm. before we, we wrap up here, I just want to ask you. You're here at the ACR. Yes. And uh I know that you're not speaking. Not, See, not and this shoot, year. I could have got it now. Not we could have got it for free. <laughs> 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 so next either you you are our ACR, I'm gonna stay I'm tuned. I'm gonna stay, stay tuned. tuned. <laughs> but um tell us just a couple of exciting things that you plan on on showing while you're here.
2: Yeah, so so I'm planning to review posters in regards to recurrent pericarditis. That's that's one of the potentially Auto-inflammatory conditions mm-hmm. presenting both in uh, in children and adults. There's a high burden of disease activity on uh, these patients. And what do we do with steroid-dependent and cortisone-resistant for these uh, kind of patients? Uh, so there are a couple of uh, interesting posters there. There are very a couple of very interesting uh, talks from the group, uh, the NIH group of Dr. Kastner and Dr. Umbrello, Mandy Umbrello who is going to be giving a talk on patients with undifferentiated auto And so how do you approach... I saw this? that.
1: Is that a paid one?
2: I think so, maybe, maybe. Maybe we need to talk. Maybe, yes. Because
1: <laughs> I think I had that on my list, <laughs> you know, and now I'm like, oh.
2: Both are excellent speakers. You okay, know, you um, might get a text from you me know. later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so okay. yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, um, conference to attend to.
1: Okay, well, great. Thank you so much, too, for coming by Appreciate and doing this. Appreciate the opportunity this. to so talk. So that's it. Wrapping up here with Apostolos. I'm yes. not even going to do the Exotic. second one. I, I got through the first one, so... You're good. <laughs> All right. Thank you again so
2: much. I appreciate much. Thank you.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is Tiffany, your host, and I am here today with Caleb Michoud, and I'm very excited to have you here, Caleb.
3: I'm excited to be here, Yay. Tiffany.
1: <laughs> I've had the pleasure of knowing Caleb, actually, for a few years now. I it guess. has. It's just time flies when you're having so much fun.
3: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and when lack of sleep at meetings, yes.
1: So, Caleb, why don't you start with just a little introduction on yourself? Well, my
3: name is Caleb Michoud still, and uh, <laughs> I am a, a researcher. I'm an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, and I'm also the co-director of FORWARD, the National Data Bank for Rheumatic Diseases.
1: Great. You also are a person living with autoimmune That's right. disease as well.
3: I was diagnosed at age three with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis.
1: The real overall general topic that we're going to be circling back around on is how patients, people living with these diseases, can get more involved in their own health care and their own journeys. And you're right. These diseases, for the most part, sometimes you're good, sometimes you're not so good. Yeah. And it's important to remember that the work that the registries, data banks are doing, are monitoring our journeys. The ups, the downs, the in-betweens, and that's, how important is that to science, would you say? it's
3: incredibly important, especially for people who don't live with it. It's so hard for others to understand what it's like to have this. Everybody has a good day and everybody has a bad day, but this is a different type, and how that's impacting you, and you know, For some folks, like the worst day ever for them had been sort of having a crook in the neck or something, (laughs) but it's just uh, uncomparable at a certain level. But it's exactly that, that we want to see, like what's important to capture and what really makes a difference and what really matters.
1: Absolutely. I want to go back for a moment. And as we're talking about this, getting involved in your own healthcare journey, and you, as you mentioned, have become a researcher yourself, take us back to where it all started when was the moment that you started saying you know this this is my journey (laughs) this is how i'm going to be involved in my own healthcare."
3: well i i I was spoiled so i was diagnosed when i was three and you know it was before i could read and write very well but my first rheumatologist was fred wolf who Mm -hmm. started the ndb the national data bank for my diseases so the journey sort of comes full circle and whenever i'd go to see him The person at the clinic would give me a four-page form to fill out. And that's just what I knew from day one. Mm -hmm. And I went to a different rheumatologist once, and they didn't even have anything to fill out. And what they were doing, and this is back in the 70s and 80s, not to date myself or anything. (laughs) Too late. Yeah. They would put this into the computer immediately. And it was digitizing what I put on the form, and it was collecting it. And Dr. Wolf would take a look at a printout on a dot matrix printer later on when it got fancier, saying, well, it looks like you're doing better now compared to you were last three times you were here. And you can see here. And he would point to this on the sheet of paper. And I was like, oh, he's actually capturing and doing something with this. And this is in the 80s. Where, yeah. And people have trouble doing that now. Mm-hmm. So, so this is 30 years later or so. That's when I first knew that this is important to collect. And there's something from it that you can actually record and find useful. I went to a different rheumatologist many years later. I moved around the country and, you know, one time the doctor says, what's going on with your stomach? I'm like, what do you mean? I wasn't thinking about my stomach. It's like, well, the last five times today is much worse. Your stomach is a condition compared to the other times. And I want to know what's going on. And it led to actually a diagnosis and treatment and something else, because I wasn't aware that this actually was getting worse, but I answered the questions accurately and consistently so that actually it was helpful. And he found a diagnosis that I wasn't fully aware of because I was there to focus on the joints.
1: Right. And, but the point of that being is he found something by tracking. Yes. By keeping a consistent pattern, a consistency of the reporting over time. Did you have ups and downs in that journey too? You were oh. good. You were bad. You were- Oh yeah.
3: I mean, and it led to surgeries, led to being mm-hmm. in a wheelchair to being like a normal person that was like invisible. So no one can tell. So, I mean, when I was here, somebody said, Hey, where's your brace at? I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, oh yeah, that thing I was wearing 2 months ago. Right. Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> Completely. I mean, there's ups and downs along the way and some days are good days. I think tomorrow will be a bad day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not because
3: of this, but because well, of lack of sleep not. and and being up so late but uh and walking around so much.
1: Oh, yes. That is one thing. If for those of you listening who have never been to an ACR meeting.
3: Oh, you get your steps.
1: I w- look look, I'm wearing tennis shoes.
3: Yeah. Smart. <laughs>
1: Deb, take a picture of my tennis shoes. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to share this with you on social media just at the very time,
4: the (laughs) very time that
1: we're talking about this. Uh, But, and I'm all dressed up, but I've got tennis shoes on. I guess that's getting involved in our own healthcare in a, in a different way, but we have to make sure we take care of ourselves.
3: I'll add to this though. the, The questionnaires are long and some of it's, you know, repetitive, but there's something to be said for giving your own health and your own care some thought. Mm -hmm. When you sit down and reflect on how are you doing? I love having rheumatologists and doctors who I want them to care about me. I want them to want the best for me. But if all they do is empathize and give me a hug or feel good, like it's it's not helping me take care of my health in the end. I want to have friends and family, hopefully for that aspect. (laughs) How are you doing today? Are you able to do this? What level of pain are you in? Are you able to be with other people socially? Are you able to sleep? All these aspects that are very important to our everyday life and what we consider to be definitions of what's a good life to live. Mm -hmm. And these are not simple things. And I think giving it some time to reflect and twice a year to do that, which can be hopefully not only helpful for the researchers, but helpful for the participant to take a look at that. We had one participant who enjoyed or reflected so much on that she wrote a book about it. We used to give it out back in the day. Her name was Mary Felsteiner out of joint, where she wrote about how these questions made her think about ways that she'd never thought about before when she didn't have a diagnosis, didn't have a symptoms. It was like a whole new world of what's happened to me. My life has changed so much from before. Whereas for me, I've never known life without having a condition. Um, you know, it was age three when I was diagnosed. And so all I know is like comparison to the good days.
1: Well, you mentioned too, you said twice a year. So people yeah. tend to do the surveys and forward Twice a year, correct? January
3: and July, Okay, yes.
1: and I did meet the lovely ladies in your office who get on the phone and call aren't, up. Aren't they amazing? They are so sweet. And,
3: <laughs> and I tell you, they really care about the patients. I mean, they're patients themselves, and they totally know what it's like to go through. And it, yeah.
1: Yeah, to listen to them speaking and making those calls, and it's a real person mm-hmm. on the line. I know that some of the people we know who participate in the data bank, say, Oh, they know him by name. Yeah. But they'll say, Oh, so-and-so called me. So-and-so called me. And it's like connecting with an old friend. I think that's just an extra something to point out that makes it a little bit unique. It's human. It's human.
3: I mean, there's there, so many. So human. these registries that existed today, most of them are all digital coming from electronic health records or clinics or somewhere else. And they really remove the personal from it. And we've reaching out to people who the only way they can reach to us is over the phone or they're going to do over the computer or or fill out the paper forms. We want to do whatever it takes to actually still work with the patient directly.
1: Absolutely. One of the things that you mentioned, I'm going to tie it into the last segment here that we're going to talk about is that participating in these help the patients think about their journeys and almost have those aha moments themselves. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's important when we're talking about getting involved in your own Healthcare and not only just understanding your disease, but understanding how it affects you.
3: Oh my goodness. So true. I don't know about you, but I got it figured out that I lose or use, I should say, about 20 minutes a day just doing things for my healthcare, getting pills, getting things, various aspects that nobody else in my family has to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so it, t- it adds up. Like, how do I speed this up? But the doctors that I see only account for like maybe one little piece of each one of those. And the electronic health record only has a little aspect of each one. Taking a stop a moment out to sort of reflect, I think, is incredibly useful. You know, one of the funny things is that people who participate in these studies live longer than people who choose not to. So oh, I, is, that, is that a is It that is a, a fact, but it's, it's also a, a bit biased, because <laughs> was, if you stop filling out the questionnaires, say, hmm. <laughs> if you stop filling out the questionnaires, there's usually a reason, and maybe it's because you, you're not doing so well as well. But um, it's also. It's associated with people who who fill them out tend to be more interested on how they are doing.
1: That well, that makes sense though. And if you're feeling yeah. better and more confident then yes. in, in essence that Helps you and we, live a and, better, longer life.
3: And if you ever n- never do the first one, though, you'll never know.
1: Oh, good so, plug. Yeah, David. I mean, it,
3: it, but it's it's true. You immediately see the people who choose not to do the first one versus the people who do. There's a big difference in health well, outcomes within a couple years. Plus, you're committing to that, yeah.
1: that questionnaire, which does take some time, but it matters. So we are here, myself, uh, Tiffany, and Deb, and uh, we are both people living with rheumatic diseases, and uh, we are actually, this is a segment from our tour for AI Arthritis Voices 360. We are at the American College of Rheumatology uh, uh, annual scientific meeting, and we have the absolute pleasure of being here with somebody that we've been working with, Oralee. So Oralee, would you like to, to just introduce yourself and, and just a little bit of your background for everyone?
5: Yes, absolutely. So I'm a current rheumatologist and uh, I'm also a researcher. My main focus is uh, rheumatoid arthritis and especially how can we improve standard of care in rheumatoid arthritis by providing um, tailored treatment to patients so we make sure that we are going to give the right drug to the right person at the right moment. Um, How to do that? Actually, uh, we've been working a lot on synovial tissue over the past years and I'm currently the co-chair of the European League Against Rheumatism synovitis study group. What are we doing in this study group? We actually are focusing on the tissue as um, the key organ targeted Um, in rheumatoid arthritis. And um, we are analyzing cell infiltrate in the tissue and making sure that um, we can better identify which uh, patient would benefit from which treatment.
1: A little bit of a background of what the type of work that we've been doing, Um, uh, patient research partner is a term that is used to describe people living with or knowledgeable about uh, different rheumatic diseases. And they are brought on with the team, the research team, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as partners, as equals, and I have had the opportunity to to participate as a patient research partner myself on in several capacities. But more recently, the last uh, couple years with uh, Omeract um, outcome measures in rheumatology. <laughs> I kind of had a blank there. I didn't have it in front of me. What's I don't want to mess that one up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, um, I am on, uh, I am in one of the working groups and I, and I had the pleasure of meeting Orly at the last, uh, at the last meeting in Australia. And I was a person who was able to sit in and listen to the great work that they're doing on with these studies on how the, the tissue can, it was it predict, predict rheumatoid arthritis so if you could just briefly orally tell us a little bit about the novel the excitement the thing that this is going to make scientific scient, uh, science like <laughs> it, make, make a difference, it out. Right, yeah. <laughs> make a difference in science how is how is this work that you're doing at omaract and in this group in particular and benefiting the patient and be, yeah, yeah. benefiting the yes. patient
5: well um actually it appears That within the synovial tissue, there can be some different patterns in terms of cell infiltrates. This means that some patients will have a specific pattern of inflammation in their tissue, and this is associated with more aggressive phenotypes. Okay. So, the tissue can, in a way, the tissue analysis, predict how the disease will evolve in the, in the years. But also, we've been able to show that depending on the pattern of cell infiltration within that tissue, some patients will respond better than others to different um, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs.
1: Okay. So that it, the reason that uh, IFAA is interested in this project specifically is because we focus strongly on precision medicine and the typical, we say the typical atypical or <laughs> who's typical, who's not typical, because <laughs> we're all unique, right? And, and it takes a lot of money, a lot of time uh, and a lot of trial and error, frankly, to Absolutely. to match patients with the right treatments. And I know that many of you listening out there who, who live with these diseases or know people who do, it, many of you have experienced that delay in the proper treatment. Mm-hmm. And it, we're really champions for the cause mm-hmm. of anything that would expedite, anything that would create more defined treatment and overall better outcomes. Right. And appropriate treatment, you know, that's for that exact one.
6: person. Yeah, that's a big exactly.
1: one. So the issue that, Deb, do you want to talk a little bit, because you're the one who has gone through these procedures. Would right. you like to talk a little bit about the issue, what the, what the procedure is from our point of view, from the mm-hmm. patient point of view, yep. and what the, what the problems or the issues that we've identified that we need to talk about when we're helping this group at Act? Sure.
6: So the particular project that we're talking about are joint biopsies. And it, I had that probably, I'm guessing about 10 years ago. And I had a, I had had surgery and after the surgery, they ended up having, a joint infection, so they wanted to go back and test the joint tissues again with for inflammation, and that is putting under. I believe it was ultrasound, if I'm remembering correctly. I'd have to go back and look exactly in my records, but it was a ultrasound that guided the needle into my knee and into the actual joint to actually take tissue samples. So what we are talking about, again, at that point, I've, I'm a dietitian by trade, so I know a lot of the medical background and understand what the procedure was for. But again, for a patient, there's always fear associated with having a needle put into mm-hmm. your joint and mm-hmm. the pain associated with that and the unpredictability of it as well. And, you know, when you're going through procedures like that, they do lay out all of the things that could potentially happen. So again, there's full disclosure. So some of that can be kind of scary Mm -hmm. to hear about or think about. I had no negative things happen afterward. You know, obviously there was pain and there was a little bit of time to get my joint back. I mean, and make it feel back to where it was before. But I had no infection related to the procedure or anything like that. So, you know, I think it's just more or less those type of pieces and, you know, the education piece. And that's kind of what this project is about as far as edu- how to educate the patient about having these procedures. And giving full disclosure as well, but also helping alleviate
1: some of the fears that are associated with the procedure. And, and when you say fears, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, early, we were, we were kind of, that goes back to kind of the setup or the procedure mm-hmm. of what happens, right? When somebody enters the study that can help all of these novel things happen <laughs> in our community, mm-hmm. the patient would be asked to go under some sort of, Minor procedure. Could you just tell us a little bit about what that is?
5: Yes, absolutely. So I've been talking a lot about Sandoval tissue, um, but uh, I haven't mentioned that um, to analyze the tissue, we first need to... um, get it
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a natural and thing that is an official <laughs> rheumatology term ladies yes. and
6: gentlemen you need to get it
1: <laughs>
6: obtain
5: <laughs> this actually means that um we need to biopsy the inside of the joint to um get that tissue and there is actually a few different ways of doing it and um we can do arthroscopic biopsy. This means that we will uh, put a camera, a very small camera, inside of the joint um, and retrieve some pieces of tissue under direct uh, vision. Another way of uh, doing this, and I think that is uh, was uh, Deb was actually mm-hmm. referring to, mm-hmm. um, is... Um, inserting a needle within the joint under ultrasonographic guidance so we can make sure we are in um, the right place Um, and then um, using a needle to retrieve a small piece of tissue. So this is actually both of the different procedures that we can do. Something that we discussed yesterday as well and that is really important going back to what you were saying, Mm -hmm. uh, Deb, is that Mm -hmm. Um, it's really important that the patient can get explanation on why.
0: Yes. And
5: because we're doing the biopsy for many different reasons. And um, obviously, if we're doing this for a clinical uh, purpose, I mean, if we are tracking down an infection, this procedure, uh, so as you had it, um, I mean, it's something that uh, is... um, I would say, unavoidable. Like, it's yes. something that has to be done. Right, right. and That's i that point. was exactly
6: what my I, case was. Is exactly. It had to be done to track down the specific type of infection yeah. To for the right medication, like you were saying, even in your introduction of, you know, explaining this.
1: Right. Yeah. But in the, your case, or
6: yeah.
5: in the case of research... Exactly, on the other hand, <laughs> it doesn't have to be done. It's something that... Um, can be done in order to um, go further in our research and improve standard of care, but it's obviously up to the patient to accept or not um, the procedure. Right. So we have to uh, say why it's important and why we want to do it, but obviously we also have to say that it won't affect um the way the patient is going to be treated at that particular moment right it's um it's like an investment in the future yes that's you know, a
1: great way of explaining it i like yeah. that. Love that i do too i really like I'm, that i'm i'm visualizing all of these posters and all of these great <laughs> like we we always say you can change your world we you can change the world from your sofa at Yeah. Our VA. it's <laughs> like it's like it goes right along that lines you know you can change the world with your Tissue or yes, your, you know, yeah, yeah, but it's true, it's true, right? The it that, and then is. you can, and then you can go back and you can sit on your sofa and rest, yes, and continue to change the world with IFAA. So yeah, that works. It's all, it all, it all magically just, just comes together. One of the things I want to point out is that if you're going to do trials like this for clinical purpose, like Deb had, it is unavoidable. But in cases like this, it's voluntary, and that's really what we need to to know here. If you had to go under one of these treatments, that's one thing. If you didn't, would you do it in order to advance science? So that's really the burning question here, and how can we help researchers recruit for trials like this, even if you aren't somebody who would be interested? uh, Please still have a voice and tell us why. To do this, just simply visit AIarthritis.org backslash podcast and look for the link to this show, the Changing the World with Your Knee. (laughs) And if you click on that, it'll take you to the whole episode page and from there you'll be able to learn more how you can help us out. Our guests in this episode are uh, Dr. Alfred Kim who is from Washington University in St. Louis. He's also assistant professor of medicine and pathology and immunology and the founder and director of the Wash U Lupus Clinic. And then Dr. Kim also brought with him Jarek Leong, Master of Public Health Program at St. Louis University, who was working with Dr. Kim on conducting research within the lupus clinic on patient needs and communication barriers that include a focus on the importance of social support. We have patients that we asked to submit topics for podcasts, and a lot of patients submitted the need for communication improvement between the patient and the rheumatologist. There were a lot of different subcategories that came up, and it was that moment that we said, wow, there's so much that needs to be <laughs> improved. Maybe we could do a whole series ca- uh, called Roomy Rounds, and the whole concept of roomy is First of all, because patients call their rheumatologists roomies, uh, but it also is a word that envelops the entire rheumatology community, and that could include researchers, that could include other doctors that work with the researchers. So we're trying to keep the scope broad uh, so that we can include all of the relevant topics. Uh, This series would be aimed at improving communications between patients and rheumatologists and people in the rheumatology community. So Jarek is conducting research uh, into this very topic. So not only do we have a conversation going, but we have some research to back it up. And we know all of you doctors listening out there like that a lot.
7: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I think think the, the framing of this podcast actually hits on the point of the exact point that we saw is that the kind of the expectation or the goals of the patient didn't always align with the goals or expectations of the physician, or that whoever's treating whoever, whatever type of healthcare provider you're seeing for your uh, condition. And so, you know, it could be, it's one of the more common things that we heard was specifically about medications and side effects. So um, if I'm a patient, I'm saying that I, I, you know, I'm coming in for a three-month follow-up after a medication change. And I'm telling the physician that, you know, I've had stomach issues or I've had food sensitivities since I started on this medication. Um, but the, phys- the physician might tell you, Hey, that's not supposed to happen. Um, I don't know why that's happening. Or they'll say like, you know, that's not supposed to happen and move on or something like that. That, right. that specific interaction is kind of encapsulates kind of what we heard is that.
4: of That's the main, uh, the main crux. Dr. Kim, you know, what,
1: what do what are the doctors expectations when when seeing a patient i know it varies if they're a new patient versus if you've seen them a while or the the variation of of their disease so it's kind of a loaded question but what are your thoughts about um your the expectations of rheumatologists in general what do you what are your goals when when we leave that that visit
8: right so i think the most important goal for us is to determine what's actionable right so is the information that we've obtained from you during the medical interview and the physical exam sufficient to be able to then say, okay, there are certain laboratory tests that we need to order. Um, Are there imaging studies? Or are there other studies that need to be done in order to either support or rule out certain diagnoses? So we think of this as a very medical thing. Mm -hmm. And in preparation for this, we do, and the most important thing we do is review other physician records that have been sent to us. And I think you use a phrase, starting over, which is very odd, uh, Tiffany, because this is very common. I think that, um, especially in rheumatology, rheumatology is a kind of a unique discipline in the sense that to me, it's like psychiatry. Um, there's no lab test for bipolar disease. There's no lab test for depression. There's no mm-hmm. lab test for anxiety. These are clinical diagnoses. Virtually all of the diagnoses in rheumatology are also clinical, but what ends up happening is that a lot of physicians overinterpret the meaning of a positive test. Okay. If you're a positive ANA, they say, oh, you tested positive for lupus. Actually, that, that, is, that actually sets the patient up for a potential conflict with the next provider that sees them that's trying to interpret what that positive ANA means. Right. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think the most important thing, and this is true for all physicians, is that reviewing the medical record gives us an idea of okay, what can we, what are we pretty sure of? What do I need to confirm in the visit? What is, and for me, and I guess everyone may be different, I'm trying to also understand what could be the potential mindsets of the patient as we start discussing the possibility that a certain diagnosis may not be right or uh, if the patient doesn't feel like they have that diagnosis, it actually may be right, and so we have to make sure that we're prepared for that conversation. Mm-hmm. Right, but to do um, this the extent of starting over, is, I think this is very frustrating for patients because you seem like you're answering the same questions over and over and over again. But a lot of this is making sure that the physician actually put it in the record right for the first time, and this doesn't happen all the time,
1: it- right? No, it doesn't. And it, it, one of the very interesting things, I know Kelly, you had mentioned that one of the expectations of going into the doctor's office is strongly based on treatments often and getting on the right treatments. And I know for myself that there has been situations where to get the medication that is best for me or deemed would be best for me or has worked best for me there, we don't There's been changing to say, oh, well, you might have to put on uh, rheumatoid arthritis in order to get access to that. And when that happens, my charts go to the next doctor, and then it doesn't have the right diagnosis on it. And that is happening a lot as well.
8: You know, one of the things I forgot to mention earlier is that actually from a medical perspective, I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen in that visit even before talking to anyone. I've reviewed the records. Mm-hmm. I right? kind of have an anticipation of how it's going to go and what to do. It's just a matter of getting to that finish line. So within there is going to be antidote from the internet and some facts. right? But mm-hmm. the, I think for a lot of physicians, the emotional aspect is not necessarily actionable from a medical perspective. It's certainly actionable from a social determinant perspective.
1: Right. And that's that's I I put a little timestamp on this because I just loved everything that you were were talking about there. I think it's so relevant because I'm going back to this whole emotional versus clinical. You're also dealing with the patient's history. So many of us have heard, uh, well, it's all in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. And so especially those early visits that you have before you develop the relationship with the doctor and even afterwards, it's almost like, uh, um, um, uh, puts you on the defensive when it you does. walk in, it's like anything in life. You have your experiences drive your emotional reactions, right? So if you have a history of a rheumatologist saying something to you, it, that worry or that, that. I know for me, I always worry that, oh, what if I, if I'm finally doing better because I've had experiences where I do better on my medication and then I'm told by a new physician, well, I don't see anything wrong with you there. You shouldn't be on medication. And the reality is I'm better because of the medication. Uh, so, but I, I have that now that's drilled in my head that that is a fear that I can't seem to get rid of. Thank goodness. I found a good doctor that I don't think will do that.
7: I
8: think, you know, these experiences, and you mentioned this earlier, Kelly, but this is not just shared with a lot of patients is that, you know, part of the self-management of being a, a patient with a chronic illness is learning how to advocate for yourself. Yeah, I find that so pathetically sad that it has to occur,
4: right? And there, there's advocacy within so many different parts of the system as well. You know, with your doctor, even with the receptionist, with, you with, uh, know, you know, insurance. I'm fighting with insurance now over something that I just do not understand, but it's that advocacy piece. And, you know, again, that's nothing. I always say I didn't grow. I didn't. I wasn't a little girl and planning to grow up to be a patient advocate that never I didn't even know what that was. But when I got sick and I didn't know what to do and I started seeing all this other stuff going on, I was like, wait, somebody has to learn how to do this. So luckily I found Tiffany my sister from another (laughs) mister. And we were able to put something together. But I think you're right. It is very sad because these things, they're so, it's so multi-layered and there's so many different things. And I think the most important thing that I think patients need to realize is that, you know, doctors are people too. I understand we're all going through pain, but you know, there is no simple magic pill. The last question I wanted to touch on, when is it time to part ways?
1: (laughs) When is it time to say, This isn't working. And I think in our, our community as patients, we talk about this a lot, but it's fair. I think for rheumatologists to accept the fact that maybe there's not a good dynamic as well on on your end. Uh, We, we use the word fire a lot, you know, fired my roomie uh, and that I've done that. I know Kelly has done that. Um, And that just means that we were fed up with, for whatever reason and we, left and that's what it means. We don't literally say to them <laughs> you're fired, you're out of here. Uh what are your thoughts about that, Dr. Kim? It you know it's it is a two-way street.
8: So um Jared touched on this earlier, but I think ultimately it's trust. right? Does the provider trust that the patient is doing everything in goodwill uh and not intentionally self-defeating? All Right. Um, and vice versa. Does the patient trust that the physician is doing everything within their own power to be able to address issues? The emotional, socially determined aspects are often neglected. And before Jared um, joined a research group and did his research about social support erosion, I was guilty of that too. But the reason is because I was never trained in it. So I never thought to even recognize it as something that needed to be addressed. So now, but you know, so actually what's interesting is that I still don't know how to address it. I just know how to recognize it. But what we are able to do in our clinic is we were able to bring in an occupational therapist who helps with um, essentially improving the experience of living with disease. And so for lupus patients, oftentimes it's learning how to improve your self-management. In which will help to lead to increased adherence to medicines and visits. It's learning how to deal with brain fog and cognitive dysfunction. It's also uh, related to, um, like, uh, you know, caregivers too. You know, how can caregivers learn to provide the adequate support? Um, not that every resource can be, a, or every issue can be addressed, but what I recognize is that since I can't do it, I need to find someone who can. So that is the other level of trust from the patient to the physician. Is the patient needs to say, listen, I heard all over and you keep ignoring it. You know, I, I this is my co- complaint for the last six visits. You know, I just want to know, you know, is there anything we can do about it? And if we I like you, but if we can't necessarily fix this problem, can you at least point me in a direction that mm-hmm. allows me to address this problem? All right. And so oftentimes physicians ignore things or don't address it. Ignore is too strong of a word. Don't address it. So because we're ill-equipped to handle that specific issue. Oh. Right. Mm Yeah. And and so if it doesn't fit within our ability, our skill set, for example, if someone came in wanting treatment for small cell cancer of the lung, (laughs) poor outcomes, right? And, you know, it's just, I can't help them right? So that problem persists even medically. Mm-hmm. So for me, I just want to make sure that I know when my limits are hit and that's my own honesty to myself. And then when that's hit, I need to figure out a strategy to get them so that it can be addressed professionally.
1: That's that's a great recommendation um, because I know that one of the bigger reasons that we hear patients, well, a couple leave is the listening, which we've already covered. I, I'm not being heard. They're, they're telling me nothing's wrong with me, but the other one is treatment expectations and not, not meeting those. Uh, I know Jarek, you had seen that in the research, correct?
7: Yeah. And it came up a lot with specifically medications and, um, when new medications are prescribed and patients feel like they're led to believe a certain thing about the medication. It's going to affect these symptoms, but it doesn't. But the doctor's like, well, you know, I, yeah, it's, it doesn't, it's not, it's just the patients, ultimately patients feel like they, that it, they're kind of led to believe certain things that don't end up being true. And that's just erodes trust. So actually you bring up something that's
8: interesting because I'm also thinking back to medical school. I was never really trained to speak with patients. Right? Mm-hmm. You're just thrown into mm-hmm. the situation, and they have an in, inherent trust that you're going to figure it out, which leads to incredible diversity of patient-physician interactions, I think.
7: And also, how do physicians then learn to talk to patients? It's from the people senior to them, and if the people senior to them don't speak well with patients, they're going to continue on. So there needs to, like, I think the big takeaway from that I want to communicate is that do, like, specific skill trainings, both for doctors mm-hmm. and for patients that agree with each other. Like, cause that's, I think that's, you know, it's very broad, but I think, you know, this podcast and the work that you both are doing, um, really speaks to the patient side, but I think you're also helping communicate with having people like other physicians, including Dr. Kim on the podcast, communicating about their perspective. It's all, this is all in that vein. So
1: absolutely. Uh- That's that's that was perfectly said, (laughs) by the way, Jarek. And I think it also goes back to what Dr. Kim said earlier when I asked, what is the ideal uh, patient that that comes in? And and he just said they commute. You've got a variety. Some communicate well. And that that's the same with doctors, right? I mean, we're all humans under underneath it all. And we all have different skill sets and different social skills and communication skills, and that, that just plays into it naturally. And, and that's something that we also have to consider. So I think we gave you a nice overview of some of the episodes that we have done since starting AI Arthritis Voices 360. One educational on the differences between autoimmune and auto inflammatory which sort of is at the heart of our organization. We spoke with Caleb from Forward National Data Bank, and we'll make sure to check out our podcast pages for that episode and all of them. You can find it AIarthritis.org backslash podcast. And you'll also learn how you can sign up for the registry and more about how we're working with Forward in our own projects and creating an AI arthritis data bank. You can also find on that podcast page the link to the Lee episode. We are recruiting people living with these diseases who would be interested in giving input on changing the world with your knee. And the segment from Dr. Kim and Jarek, that was actually over two different episodes. So there's a lot you can catch up on those. That's from our Roomy Rounds episodes. So make sure you check those out too. And one more thing I wanted to point out that is new for all of these samplings that you just listened to, in addition to the, I think we're, gosh, we're up to 40-something episodes, I believe. Woo! So all of those are on our new Facebook group that is located on our organization page. You can find that by searching IFAI Arthritis, and you'll see the group. Called AI Arthritis Voices 360. Take a seat at the table. And there you can comment on any of these episodes. The co hosts and the guests may come in and say hello and continue the conversation with you as well. So we do hope that you do come and join us in that group because we can't do what we do at our organization without your voice. All opinions, perspectives, and experiences matter. So please take that seat at the table and help us solve the problems of today and tomorrow.
0: AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.airthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode, where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events.